Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room's first ever episode with a professor uh, from Stony Brook University. So we're really excited. Um, Adam and I, who both have been in contact with this professor during our time uh, in the PhD program at Stony Brook. Her name is Benta Vidabak, Dr. Benta Vidabak. Um, she also likes to be called mother of dogs, which she'll go into, because uh, <laughs> I have a lot of questions about that. Um, and I was grateful to have her as uh, my uh, TA experience uh, for science fiction. Uh, she was the presiding professor. Um, uh, I, I think Adam had, had her too. For a Twice. Class. So I win. Yeah. Uh, once for the history of the English language, which was a revelatory class because I'd never taken anything like it. So I was there learning with, the, with all the undergraduates, mm. even though I was also assigning homework. And once for Shakespeare, where I had the audacity to say, can I teach the next five classes? And she said, yeah, because it was King Lear and I wanted to do all of it. Yeah. And I think we could keep gushing and going back and forth with how much we fanned out in her class. But I think yeah. we'd all love to hear from Benta right now. So welcome, Benta. Thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. Thank you for having me. So I know when we met before, and for those listening, Benta and I, we have conversations outside of this podcast as well. Uh, so I feel like I'm with an extended family member right now. Uh, so I'm going to though, try to go over the questions that I and Adam already know the answers to. But I always find this story really fascinating of how you first got into Shakespeare studies. So maybe for everyone listening right now, can you explain how you just got interested and what caught your attention? Should I start from the start? Yeah, you can start in media race, wherever you want to start. Um, I was given a copy of Hamlet when I was about 10 years old, and I know how that sounds. But uh, <laughs> I was reading it on the bus going to school. It was not a school bus. It was a regular bus. And uh, we kids were pushed to the back of the bus. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> I was sitting there reading Hamlet, and one of my friends came up to me flipped my book and said, how did you sink so high? <laughs> so, uh, that was basically how it started. And uh, I loved it in high school equivalent, Danish high school equivalent. And uh, actually probably Shakespeare made me major in English mm. at Copenhagen. Uh, so I got my degree there and I taught some Shakespeare in uh, high school. Um, and then my husband was headhunted by a lab in Chicago and we moved here and there was nothing I could do as an import. So uh, I got myself matriculated at Northwestern and uh, ran into a wonderful scholar named John Stein and his very good friend Cole. And we hung out about Shakespeare. Douglas Cole is uh, the Marlowe scholar. So uh, there was a lot of drama going on. And uh, I finished uh, five years and two kids later mm. um, and ended up 
at Stony Brook after a stint at Suffolk uh -huh. and uh, never looked back. All Shakespeare. Yeah. And how long have you been at Stony Brook, Benton? Oh, 97. We started winter 97. I don't, I'm English. I, I don't do math. <laughs> yeah. And your, um, your gentleman cohabitant works at the uh, Cyclotron, right? Um, at Rick, yes. At the, um, at Brookhaven at, National yes. Laboratories. Yes. He uh, collides innocent gold at atoms recreationally and measures their screams of pain. <laughs> uh, I found I found a paper he was collaborating on lying on the kitchen table, and uh, part of the title was "Ow Ow Collisions." Aurum, right? Latin gold. So, <laughs> yeah. So what I what I think is going to be the most tragic part of this story is that the the listeners aren't going to be able to see your deadpan delivery. <laughs> Which is, which is not nice to deprive them, but we don't really have another option given the format. Yeah. Um, I try to sound very deadpan. <laughs> no, 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 this is, this, is a, this, is a personal, this is a personal issue for me because when I, I mean, Benta um, got her first, you know, Shakespeare play when she was 10. I started getting my first, I can't tell if you're joking or serious, comments when I was about 10. Hmm. So in, in a way it was, it was very liberating meeting with a mentor figure who had the same talent. Hmm. And I, it's something I wish, it's something I wish we could share with our, with our listeners, but unfortunately they are listeners and not viewers. So hmm. them's the, but I think they can hear the hint of sarcasm every time you deliver lines, Adam. I hope so. Otherwise, they're going to think I'm a fucking asshole. <laughs> well, I just did it there, too, with my tone of voice. But also, everyone doesn't get to see right now, I wore a playful book nerd shirt for Benta, because Benta's known. Well, I think this goes into... We were talking about Benta's um, performance. Yeah, and this is part of what the we really learned from being there, your TAs, Benta, and um, right now, do you want to tell the listeners what kind of shirt you're wearing? Um, um, I am underneath my jacket wearing a black t-shirt with Odin's war face on it. I thought that was appropriate for today. And for those who don't know, where does Odin's war face, the illusion, come from? Um, it's from one of the runic stones. And uh, I bought it in a medieval-themed Viking village where my son wanted to try a piece of, of, of body armor. Wow. And uh, he was eight, I think. So uh, he insisted they put it on and his knees hit the ground. It was heavy. <laughs> Very nice. So he was almost old enough to go Viking with the, with the men. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the sort of mind-blowing things I've heard from historians that Viking is actually, it means basically traveler. Mm. So the idea of a Viking culture is like a culture that employs people to go off trading and pillaging mm. and all the rest of it. But like, don't forget the raping. Don't forget the raping. Mm. Um, also called bridal acquisition. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's how they cover it up. Interesting. God. Good God, yeah. The Viking HR department must have had a field day coming up with terms. 
you don't see a lot of Viking scholars anymore, or maybe I'm not in the circle with um, Viking scholars. I think a lot of languages. I have a feeling the medieval era has uh, put, been put on hiatus right now, mm. which is very sad because it's so much fun. Well, and I think that speaks to you were, well, one of the, there might be someone else in the English department, but I thought there were only two of you who were medievalists there were, when I uh, arrived. I'm not really, I'm a, an early modernist, but okay. uh, Stephen Spector's a medievalist, but he's sort of abandoned that for uh, Bible studies. Mm -hmm. well, he's always into Bible study. He's just uh, started going modern a little bit. Oh, quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and there's uh, Joaquin Martinez Pizarro, he's who just retired. retired. Um, and I, I used to love talking to him about his, his adventures. He once said that he went to Iceland to, to study. Um, I mean, he knew kind of all the languages, and um, he he went to Iceland to study Icelandic because why not? That's but he doesn't like eating fish. He's he's one of the very few pe people from a coastal Latino country that doesn't like to eat fish. And there he was in Iceland, and he said not only were there nineteen items or out of ten items on the menu, nine of them were fish. One of them was chicken, but the chicken had been fed on fish parts, so it tasted ah. like fish. So he said he basically ate peanut butter the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> he spent a summer in Denmark once. Wow. And- uh, You've also done that. Many a summer, many a summer. Uh, but he came back capable of reading Danish and he was in love with uh, uh, a uh, restoration type Danish playwright. So I gave him play after play oh. when I went back. Well, and I guess I'm just connecting right now that for those who may not be up on their Hamlet, uh, maybe they skipped it in high school, um, that it's the Prince of Denmark and that that was your first entrance into Shakespeare. Oh, yeah, seems so cliche, but it also makes a lot of sense though too for but how much of a wide reading, what I always am astounded with when I talk with you, Benta, is your knowledge of and don't worry this isn't going to just be all gushing right now but how much reading breadth you have like you can go from talking about the early modern period to talking about stephen king to talking about a high fantasy author and you can connect them all together and i think that's what i always just enjoy is you're able to do some really interesting close reading practices with that well, I think that all comes from the origin story. Mm. Um, I had my greatest accomplishment in life at the age of zero at birth. Mm. Uh, I personally augmented the population of my village by precisely 2%. Oh, wow. It was little. <laughs> mm. And there was nothing to do. The last bus came at 6.30 at night. And all you could do was read. They rolled up the side. We didn't have any sidewalks to roll up. But uh, there was nothing to do at night. Mm. So I read mm -hmm. a lot. I bet when you were young, you also increased the crime rate significantly. <laughs> <laughs> when when yes. you were a whippersnapper. 
Well, we, we, the, the school took uh, in people from several villages. So uh, yeah. we were about, we were combined in a one room schoolhouse, three classes. We were about 20 people. Mm. Oh my goodness. Mm. Well, and how far were you from Copenhagen? 90K. Okay. Yeah. So an hour and a half by car. Okay. So it wasn't too far away, but it wasn't a, oh, let's go over there after school experience. Nope. No. The yeah. only place I was to go over there after school was uh, out in the fields and pet the horses. Mm. Horses are good people. Yeah. That, that actually sounds like kind of fun. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting because in a way it's kind of like the placement of Stony Brook University from Manhattan. Come on, there are coffee shops, there's uh, takeout. No, no, I know. I live in a quaint fishing village. No, no. I think it probably once was a quaint little village. Yeah, like a hundred years ago. ago. Yes, exactly. So all you have to do is go back then. Yeah, but I think personally. Going back to. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying my time machine broke down. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, that's funny because that was one of my favorite texts that we read in the science fiction course is when you got us to read H.G. Wells's um, Time Machine. Uh, but also, maybe I've always been curious to ask you this. Your methodology of how you create a topic course, um, like the text that you decide you'll choose from especially the time periods, like, do you have a certain method or do you, yeah, well, I'll give it to you. How, how do you organize usually, Benta, your uh, topic courses? Uh, I take things I like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if, if they happen to gel somehow, that's a benefit. If not, I'll have to try and make them gel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Also, if I can, I do non-canonical works because with canonical works, people feel more constrained because mm-hmm. they, uh, they know so many other people have written about these texts and they feel stupid and inferior and all that. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good idea. So I try to take something they've never heard about and uh, let them have fun with it. Yeah. I have done several uh, author courses where I have taken uh, plays that people don't normally read from the early modern period. We've had a good time. (laughs) I remember once uh, I was trying to get somebody to come to this class uh, because I enjoyed having him as a student. Mm. Uh, And one other guy was trying to pressure him as well. Uh, And I said something about, tis pity she is a whore, about fraternal incest. (laughs) And uh, he came. I don't know if it was because of the fraternal instinct. But then one day after class, we were doing Tis Pity, and I hear him say to his friend leaving the class, remember how she promised me incest in the hallway? I got it. (laughs) (laughs) You're not supposed Uh, to do incest in the hallway. Yeah, that is such a good play, too. Um, Oh, yeah. It is. For those of of our listeners who are just scratching their heads, uh, Tis Pity She's a Whore is a 17th century play by Richard Ford. John. John Ford, thank you. Sorry. Uh, Richard Ford is a modern novelist. Anyway, oh, by John, John Ford, 
about a brother and sister who are miserable in their lives, like their parents are the worst, um, and they cohabit. Um, uh, the fun thing is when you read this play, mm -hmm. as they cohabit, she has three suitors. Yes. And nobody reaches the knees of her brother as a human being. Mm -hmm. And he's not, he is not very nice either, but uh, yeah. and he's absolutely the best choice she could have in that play. Yeah. So right. And there's right. so much murder too. So if you're <laughs> interested in murder, it's a, well, it's a tragedy. I mean, 16th century and 17th century plays, if, if you're interested in murder, you're very rarely disappointed. Mm -hmm. But, and we were also talking about if you're, and I know, I remember, Benta, you would always advocate this, is if you can find um, an audiobook version or some dramatized version, like don't think that you're not allowed to use that as an option right. to get you into the text. And Tis Pity She's a Whore, I know, does have a really good dramatized and audio it's version. Not, it's not that rarely to see it performed. I've seen it twice. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's got a catchy title. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Yeah, but it brings it, the performance, because I, I think we might have both seen the same off-Broadway performance, but it's, um, there's something about, well, these dramatic texts, when you see them performed, that early modern language doesn't necessarily serve as a barrier anymore. And I think it's the same way when you see a Shakespeare play performed. Um, or on film, if it's a good one. That's true. Yeah, and even listening to it, um, and don't worry, for everyone, now we're dropping all these different suggestions. I'll add a few in our show notes. We'll have some of these audio versions. If you want to, well, listen to something, uh, you can do a yeah, performance I'm night. I'm, um, I'm excited for our little pool of listeners to start going around quoting John Ford. And <laughs> That's true. But there's even, like right now, I'm listening to The Tempest, and... Um, it's with, um, I think, Sir Ian McKellen, but I could be wrong with who exactly is in it, uh, but it just, it really heightens, and you hear the cadences of the lines, um, and I think with Shakespeare language, we, we don't have to always know the exact you know, in context meaning in each line to understand what's happening with the action. Um, but I don't know. I mean, we each, I think we all have Benta the most, but we've all taught a Shakespeare play yeah. in our, in our time. Um, so I maybe- I stole one from her though. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, which one did you steal? King Lear. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, and so Benta, if you had to suggest a Shakespeare play to the listeners and- To start with? Yeah, to start with, which one do you suggest? I was gonna uh, say the same thing. It's, okay. it's Shakespeare does Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, oh wait, don't give too much away. <laughs> I don't wanna give too much away to the listeners. There's but, a glorious movie called Titus from 1990. It's fantastic. It is spectacular. It, it, it makes violence beautiful and gruesome at the same time. I love that movie. It's a great movie. And you, sh you showed it in class, or parts of it. Oh, really? Yeah. And people go, ew. <laughs> Who's in that? 
Do you know who plays it's Titus? It's pretty gross. Uh, what's his name? Zorro. Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. Oh. Interesting you chose Zorro and not Silence of the Lambs. I said, the lift out. Yeah, well, and I feel like that would be interesting. Do Titus Andronicus, Silence of the Lambs, and Sweeney Todd. Oh, my goodness. You could have a really interesting. Yeah. Well, you can make gel. I've always suggested I wanted to do a musical theater course in literature. Um, the time hasn't come yet, but I think there's a lot you could do with musical theater and all of these dramatic Shakespearean texts. There absolutely is, especially the ones that are based on uh, older forebears. I mean, I always find it interesting that a funny thing happened on the way to the forum has the same <laughs> mm. plot for the first third or two thirds as Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, that's true. But one's a comedy and the other's a tragedy and it can be argued that they're both comedies oh you see <laughs> yeah and, <laughs> yeah i don't want to bring this into a downer conversation now because well, i can feel the uplifting nature no, so 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 my my um my first shakespeare play i would think would be like would be romeo and juliet honestly mm. first of all it's really good no. Um, I had to read like 30 Shakespeare plays, um, probably 35. I don't think I, I read every single one. I think I missed a couple. Are you sure you didn't read 36? Pretty sure. Or 37? Pretty sure. I think I, think I, I, think I made it to 35. I'm in a humorous mood. Because I, I, remember, I remember thinking like there's a couple more and then just letting the matter drop. Yeah. Or there, there are a few that I've read. Or yeah. there are a few that I've read like once or twice and it's just not enough. Yeah, but what is it about Romeo and Juliet for you? So, so I, it's just, I mean, the, the characters are fantastic. Mm -hmm. They really are. Um, Juliet is a wonderful character. Romeo is an interesting enigma because he's supposed to be the hero, but he's really not. Um, and then all of the minor <laughs> characters are gorgeously fleshed out. Benvolio is an interesting character. Yeah. The, you know, the pacifist in a, in a violent place. Uh, Tybalt is an interesting character because mm -hmm. he wins at violence and yet he's not the hero. So mm -hmm. you would, like, you would think that everybody is, um, that everybody loves him because, you know, it's a, it's a very violent city and he's the most violent. Mm -hmm. But no, you see in the character interactions that the ambivalence of mm -hmm. everybody, right? Mm -hmm. The, 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 fathers, uh, old Capulet and old Montague clearly don't want the situation that they've inherited, mm. but they're powerless to stop it. It's a really wonderful meditation on generational trauma. I'm glad you see that. I guess I don't see that in the text, Adam, I, because- I've always been bored to death. Yeah, I, I, like, <laughs> I like, well, I like when it's performed. I have to be honest with you, Adam. The only reason I really do enjoy Roman and Juliet is because of how I was taught it in ninth grade by a very good English teacher who had us watch the Italian uh, Zeffirelli film from the oh. 1960s. And that's that an amazing, I think it's one of the best Shakespeare. And it bores me to death. That terrible. Well, I feel like the friar bores me. Anytime the friar comes in the scene, I start to close my eyes. Every time the friar comes in, I think about a movie called The Great Grace that pre people probably do not have seen. 
Somebody says he was accompanied by a small friar. And mm. the, the re reaction, of course, is a chicken. <laughs> I guess, yeah. And for me, <laughs> Juliet, I really do love the Prokofiev ballet version because I feel that Juliet and the families, especially, um, would you call them the trio or the Romeo gang? Um, they have a lot of great dancing moments, um, but I always find it hard to see, and I know some scholars have argued that Juliet in the text, there is a type of feminist approach you could take with her, but it's tough. She's, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's this love, labor, and um, there's, but there's a certain petulance to Romeo, and yeah. maybe I can't see beyond it. Um, I mean, but no, I'm saying, I agree with you, Adam. I do think it's a good entrance. It's usually- well, Romeo's not the hero. Juliet is the hero. Well, you can argue that. I don't know if that's well, apparent. I'm a guy, so that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah. But I don't, for female characters, though, I don't think Juliet is the strongest female written character. I think it's Macbeth's wife. Yeah, you're probably And right. I think it's Cleopatra, but- Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But to me, Romeo and Juliet is a comedy that breaks in the middle and tries to become a tragedy. And uh, mm -hmm. that break in the middle turns me off so horribly. Really? Mm. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of those uh, in Shakespeare, if you, if you look. Um, Julius Caesar is kind of, is, has, has a break in the middle. Yeah, I don't like that one either. I, lo <laughs> oh, I love so, Julius Caesar. So this is becoming a genre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the, the one that I would say people really need to, to look into is Troilus and Cressida. Oh yeah. That mm. to me is, is the greatest of all of, all of the plays. Mm. Um, not, I mean, in, in, term, in, terms of, in terms of how it, um, how it sits with, um, like how it, how it reveals the author's mindset, right? Because it's this, it's this amazing burlesque on hmm. the Iliad and hmm. the, the whole, what was called at the time, the matter of Troy. Hmm. Which um, is why it's difficult to teach to most people because right. uh, there is no background. Right, it, it's, it's one of the higher barriers to entry. And yet it's amazing. Well, would and you teach the Iliad with it? No. Not the no. Iliad. It would have to be one of the medieval romances about Troilus and Cressida. Yeah. Um, Troilus and Cressida are minor characters in the Iliad. Troilus is a hero who's mentioned once or twice. Mm. Cressida is the woman that the priest comes to rescue in book one mm. and is never seen again in the epic but of course in the medieval literature she has a lot of fanfic written about her mm. i guess maybe and this isn't to you know uh shift the ground from your argument adam i just don't know if it's ever healthy and we've talked about this before but i don't think it's healthy to say this is the greatest such and such. This is the greatest well, Shakespeare play because I don't think there's a greatest Shakespeare play. No, I think you, there no, are. I, I think there are narrative. Though. What? Wait. Sorry, you're talking over me. What are you saying? I said I can say it provisionally, though. I mean, well, for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's a subjective opinion. Exactly. Exactly. I am um, very often, or was very often, asked what my favorite Shakespeare play is, and I would say the one I'm teaching right now. 
Yeah, I yeah. love that answer. Yeah, <laughs> I love it also. Well, because I've turned to so much, so many Shakespeare plays over the time. Like, I love... I feel it depends if I'm going to turn to a Shakespeare play. It depends what kind of mood I want to enter into in a theatrical way. So, like, if I want to see all of the revenge, I'll turn to King Lear. If I want yeah. to see... I would turn to a Hamlet. Yeah. Well, I like Hamlet for the monologues and for well, his you psychology. Back, yeah. You can come what? back. Yeah. Yeah. And back, back, and back. Yeah. It's true. But I just love his psychological... I do think, for me, Hamlet is the one I like to teach. It's the one I taught the most. It's the one I don't like to teach. Oh. Really? Why? I can't finish. Oh, there's too much. Um, I, I had a, a master's class a couple of years ago that I centered on Hamlet. Mm. And uh, we didn't do very much else all semester. Mm. That's the first time I really finished it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you're right. If you want to get to every part of Hamlet, it can be... A long It time. is a whole semester worth mm -hmm. text. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I also enjoy the Shakespeare plays to teach that I know have a lot of cultural allusions and representations. So like Hamlet, I love all of the film versions to analyze. Not that I love all the film versions, because um, there's one I'm not particularly fond of um, because of a certain actor in it, but I'll leave that where it stands. Um, but I really like that you can do a lot of media analysis with it. Um, and I guess you could do the same thing for Macbeth. A lot of them have multiple adaptations, but I'm wondering if A Midsummer Night's Dream is one of the most accessible in terms of, especially if you're going to turn to a comedy. Could be. I think, uh... I would do Twelfth Night probably. Mm. Yeah, I had a similar thought. It's 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 that that simple romance comedy. Like it's a recognizable genre. Mm. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream is fun though. Um, what I what I liked to teach though when I uh, when I was sort of when I had a when I had college classes to teach, I loved teaching the sonnets in combination with Catullus. Mm. Oh, he's um, because I I, it's the same thing with what Bento was saying uh, a moment ago that I I like teaching the the less canonical works, mm. and the thing about there being over a hundred and fifty sonnets is that you know that the students have missed a few, mm. even if they even if they've heard of one or two or three or seven from their high school English class, which many of them have. Mm. you you know that you can still shock them um and impress them and not only that when you when you compare them to what was popular at the time such as the epigrams and uh and so on of catullus the 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 sheer pornography of catullus's poem poems always surprises people mm. right um like the fact that he uses the phrase four-way intersection as a sexual metaphor, the fact that he um, that he yeah. has that in the same poem as this really gorgeous elegy about his late brother. 
Um, well, that's why Whitman is so fascinating too. Yeah, exactly. Because exactly. a lot of students don't think Whitman's going to be erotic, but there's so much eroticism in Whitman. There's so much eroticism, but there's also so much conventional lyricism. I mean, still, still, I, I remember the, um, the month that I spent re reading and rereading uh, when Lilacs Last and Dooryard Bloomed mm. for a college essay. Yeah. And it was just, it, it felt, reading it felt the same as listening to like a really good piece of music, like a, a Schubert um, chamber music. Mm. It was just, it, it, it had these, these parts that felt like instruments that kept coming back and, and kept um, sounding in harmony with each other. Yeah, well, and I would say that for me, it's one of Whitman's most um, attuned moments to have a speaker who reflects so much on mourning and grief, but also yeah, exactly. optimism. I mean, I think it's the poem I would read right now during the pandemic. Like sure. if I if I was just turning to Whitman, no, I, um, I could not see that. teaching a Whitman course. I could see that, but the the the, the casualness of Catullus's mourning is similar to. Um, I'm I'm going to try to make like a a complicated point here, so. When, when Catullus is talking to his brother, he says something like, um, I've crossed many countries to come see you and to chat with your ashes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with, sorry, to, to, to chat about nothing with your mute ashes, which is, it, which is such a, it's such a, it's such a gorgeous line because it, it combines the gravity of the funereal, business that he's come to attend to with the casualness of a sibling relationship. Mm. And it's almost impossible to translate things like this because, because the music is also there in the original Latin. Um, and Whitman, I think, does the same thing. So that where, where in Catullus you see the, the casualness of his pornographic poetry translate beautifully to the casualness of his elegiac poetry. Same thing in Whitman, you see the, 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 um, the sensuousness of his pornographic, not pornographic, his erotic poetry. Whitman is not pornographic. Catullus is pornographic. Whit Whitman is erotic. Yeah, I was gonna uh, say, no, I using, would not say Whitman's pornographic. Using, using the wrong words here. Um, the, the, the sensuousness of his erotic poetry translates beautifully to his funereal poetry and he's not going for casualness obviously he's going for this sort of bardic seriousness yeah and well, I think part of the reason he achieves it is because his poetry and at other times is so sexy yeah, here wait. I just want to pivot a little if that's okay um, yeah go for it I just want to pivot to ask you Benta because I feel like I haven't centered you enough um <laughs> And I wanted to ask, so the three of us, we all have enthusiasm for Shakespeare. That can't be doubted. I mean, I can tell. I'm curious though, what do you do in a time of a pandemic, in a racial and social justice awakening, and you're left with Shakespeare? What do you do? And that's just a question I have for a lot of these authors. Like, what is advice that scholars and teachers have right now about, um, you know, I have my own beliefs, but I'm always curious to talk to other educators of how 
how are they maybe teaching these texts that they might not have taught before in the same way? There's always a third off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, you can do a lot, uh, not so much pandemically, but racially with that play. Mm. And you can undermine a lot of the ideas people have um, about everybody being racist, etc., etc. Everybody is not racist in a film. Mm. Um, but you, you, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would go with that one. Yeah, yeah. And but even in your own teaching philosophy, and I make it sound so formal, but it's not. But you know. Um, what we call our teaching philosophy. Um, you choose authors from many different backgrounds um, and you don't choose all male authors. Um, and is it important to you that, you, and I don't think you're very, we're all cognizant of it when we're choosing selections, but you say you choose what you gravitate towards. And it seems like you gravitate, you gravitate towards complicated narratives and ones that don't have a one-size-fits-all answer. Um, as you say, teaching philosophy, and you also said you felt you hadn't centered me enough. Uh, that's one reason for those texts. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to be centered. I want everybody to talk around me and I want us all to learn from each other and uh, see different things than you saw from your, your desk at, or couch at home when you were reading. So uh, just Make them argue. Go for it, guys. And I think that's why I'm attracted to things like you were thinking left hand of darkness right now, I know. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah. Yeah, the left hand of darkness, if no one's read it. Benta got me into reading that book. I would probably have never read that. A lot of the texts that I had read in Benta's course, you know, I don't delve into science fiction a lot. Um, so it was an excellent experience to realize that I can incorporate this genre in my own teaching and it doesn't have to be its own topical course. Like I can choose a science fiction text and relate it to Whitman's poetry. Um, where right now I'm reading for the first time and I always love when I teach a text I've never read before. And I say that to my students because it gives them a lot of, I think, freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm reading Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, and we're putting oh yeah. my god, yeah, and we're putting it in conversation that, with Whitman, yeah. That is such a beautiful book. Yeah, I can't. I wait. love it so much. Yeah, and I'm excited for the reading experience, <laughs> and just letting my students know I'm looking at this anew. Um, I think I, I've only taught it twice. I think okay for some reason, but the both times it's been great. Yeah. Yeah. They, it, the response has been wonderful. Yeah. And do you do, when you teach Shakespeare, do you do the type of rhetorical uh, tool where you say, although many of you know this is what I study, or I've written on Shakespeare, I really want you to discover it yourself? Or No, I say, how would you stage this scene? Mm. What would you stress? What should you uh, what should you think about getting through to an audience, and how would you do it? Mm. And then we talk back and forth about that. 
Yeah. yeah the, um, the thing I remember that, about being an undergrad is we didn't necessarily think about the fact that our professors had written articles for other professors about these books. We just, I mean, there's, maybe I was particularly unself-aware. Um, I think every student sees its teacher as, mm -hmm. okay, now it's my time. So we open the closet door, take him or her out. Uh, he or she teaches me for X amounts of minutes and then they go <laughs> back in the closet for next time. Yeah. I love that. Oh, you don't think I just love that image. I feel like that's a good, that could be an interesting sci-fi short story, Benza. That's hilarious. The teacher. No, nobody thinks about you unless you work hard at it in other contexts than in the classroom. Right. Like seeing you as a full-bodied person. Why would they? Mm. Most people are in there for the grade, right? Uh, at least at the beginning. And then uh, it's wonderful if you can stop that mindset and make it yes. about what you're and, doing. Yeah. And, um, you know, not because I know your courses and correct me if I'm wrong, but you really do highlight close reading assignments and having them do um, their own analysis, instead of saying, I'm going to give you a 100 final exam, Scantron. Um, you know, to, to me, the important thing is to be able to answer the question for yourself, why do you say that? Mm -hmm. um, I think that the, the critical thinking aspect of education has gone sorely down the drain. Mm. And I think that's a very bad thing to happen. So, uh, that's why I do what I do. Basically, what do you think of X? How would you stage X? Why would you do it? Yeah. Uh, can you tell me what in the text prompted that idea with you? Uh, so it's, I don't, I try not to preach. Mm -hmm. I'd much rather be given the ammo from the students and then some, some, um, somehow guide them if, if they go a place that I don't think it is really like, oh, my grandma used to say this. <laughs> Back <up there. laughs> but uh, I like it to come from them more than it comes from me because I think that uh, I've been lectured at in my time quite a bit and I don't retain any of it. I've also had teachers who actually let me find the text myself and own it mm -hmm. and I remember that still from way back when. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm trying to give that to people. Yeah. yeah, it's such a good observation point. Philosophy, I think what you're talking about right now is a type of philosophy of teaching, but you know. Um, Socrates, how are you? Yeah, yeah. Socrates, yeah, the Socratic method. Um, and I love how much agency that gives students. Because, um, right, we can say all we want that. Um, we're not, we're all on the same level, but that's never true. Like there is always an instructor, right? But you can give them power to own the text. And that's exactly what you're uh, discussing, Benta. And I think it's such an important yeah. method because the texts that I always remember are the ones where either I debated with other students about in the class and the instructor opened us up to that experience or 
ones that I wanted to learn more about. And it's usually because we had a lot of freedom with our interpretations. Um, but yeah, and I know you have your own opinion about the lecturing method, especially you're talking about how much you don't retain. And it's true in scholarship studies they've done, students don't retain as much information when they are um, given the, it's called the banking method. Like when, if you imagine an instructor being in charge of a bank, that they're just like depositing money into the students' brains. Um, that is not a helpful method. No. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and I know, right, there's the theory that exists that that's not a helpful method. Like you can turn to Bell Hooks, who I really like reading, or Paulo Freire, who I guess really critiqued the banking method. But, you know, I still see the lecture model existing in ways. Um, and we'll have more and more of that. You, oh, so you think it actually could spike up again? Oh, yeah. And why do you think that could be? Um, think about the possible consequences for academia uh, of this pandemic. Mm. We're sitting at home and uh, how easy is it to, to actually see 125 faces on your screen as you try to engage people in conversation. I think it, it's very easy then to fall into the trap of PowerPoint or the trap of straight lecture mm. because that way you feel you're working for your money and you feel you're giving them what they need uh, even mm. though you probably aren't. Mm. Uh, well, that's because, very true. Because to me, a lot of learning is the environment the give and take. And uh, there's this country song called I'm much cooler online. I am not much cooler online. Uh, <laughs> so I, I like the way people spark ideas quickly off each other mm. and uh, give me ammo for another question that'll ha have it happen again. And I, I'm not that good at that online. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult yeah. in fairness. I think also that uh, institutions will find that this is a, a very cheap comparative, comparatively cheap method of uh, educating people. And so I'm afraid that there will be a lot less in-person learning after this pandemic. Mm. Yeah. Um, somehow it seems as if uh, many in charge are already trying to talk instructors into loving this and uh, embracing it and doing it more. Mm. That scares me. Yeah. Well, and there's also accessibility issues, not only with the students, which I know I've been getting emails from, especially students who have anxiety issues, mental health issues. Um, you know, it's so much harder to um, scaffold lessons online, especially if a student's already struggling with all the material from their courses. And like, they've told me, um, there is no uniformed, um, and I'm not saying there should be a uniform method of teaching, not at all, but there's no, there's not a lot of check-ins going on with faculty as a department, all departments. No, but uh, the, only thing you, the only thing you can do nowadays to, to get that personal effect if you want is schedule a one-on-one -on -one zoom meeting mm -hmm. yeah uh, which i have done repeatedly and often 
or, yeah. or giving them a phone number and hang out with them on, on in that way. But uh, yeah. if you have a, I fortunately not have a large had a large class while this has been going on. But uh, it's difficult enough to reach say twenty five. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it, one one thing I, that one thing that um that I think is is important is that we are humanities teachers. And so we're having this conversation now. I find myself worrying that people in the science departments have already lost this battle because even, I mean, what, what professor who's used to teaching a lecture with 500 students is saying, oh no, Zoom is gonna lose me the personal touch. And many of those professors have no attendance policy on their uh, syllabi because they let themselves be filmed doing it so that people can just, at their convenience, mm -hmm. look at that lecture. Yeah. Which makes it, again, a straight lecture. Yeah, if it's a straight and, lecture, uh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. And you can do that. You can do that on Zoom just as well as you can do it in any other format. And they are. I, I know somebody who, um, I forget exactly what he teaches, uh, but we were talking about, uh, we were talking about his new lectures and, and they're now, I think the, the term is asynchronous or something like that. Like the, there's a there's a term for when you're not a teacher That's anymore, me. you're just a lecturer. Well, no, I'm asynchronous. That's not what asynchronous means. I'm synchronous. I mean, yeah, Bent is asynchronous too. No, I'm so, synchronous. Oh, oh, I'm asynchronous, so meaning that I don't do lectures. I no, do asynchronous means that, as far as I've been informed, that you don't spend all your class time in conversation with the students. No, no, no. That's not what it means. Right. No. Asynchronous means that you don't meet at the same time with the students live. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that you can just deliver whatever you want mm. uh, as, as content, and they can just check it in, check in on it. Well, they have, they have the flexibility that they don't mm -hmm. have to do the assignments on, at a live time. Yeah, so like that's what happens... That's basically what I meant. Oh, okay. But... Um, I have I uh, have conversations with them synchronously. Yeah. In in a lot of time. Yeah. But anything else they want, they'll have to deal with me in person on Zoom on phone. Andrew, what are you trying to communicate? Like what well, what what is your what is the structure of your of your classes these days? Yeah. So I use VoiceThread technology, and I offer four discussion question prompts. And I explain like the text and here's the discussion question I want you to answer. And then they have to do video or audio responses to each of those four questions. And then they comment on each other's. Um, so my job is to listen to their comments and um, they also have close reading presentations each week. So two students do a um, five minute presentation on VoiceThread and they are doing a close reading analysis of the text that's assigned. Um, but I offer everything on Monday. So like yesterday I was busy. I always get everything ready for them on Monday and they have until Friday to do all of the commenting. So what so, you're doing sounds like a fascinating and really fantastic way of threading this needle. Yeah, well, I'm doing- What a lot of people are doing is just posting a lecture. Yeah, no, 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 that's not what I do. And I don't want to. I don't want to run down people. Like, it's really hard to write a lecture out and record it 
none of us have none of us are used to writing our lectures out word for word or even improvising for a camera like like um like you went to second city chicago you know i mean these are these are not our skill set and 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 we're increasingly expected to to just deal with it at no well, I would say, salary. I would say I'm very comfortable with recording myself because of my performing art training. You are. I am. And but that's where the performing are. arts really help teachers because we're actually being asked now to do a type of performing role. Yeah. Um, I think the second you enter a classroom, you're in performance. You are. No, yeah. exactly, Venza. Uh, you the are. same is true for, for priests, etc. That's true. Pop <laughs> in the pulpit, you're performing. Yeah, yeah, you have a persona you take on, even if you and, don't think you're taking it on. It's, and you know. Benta, I don't mean to make you blush, but one of the things that I learned about teaching and performance uh, was from watching you take care of your class. Um, th those of you who have, haven't had the pleasure, uh, Benta is, is this like, is this like really comfortable sort of motherly, grandmotherly presence in the classroom. <laughs> With the 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 like the funny auntie, you know, with the with the shirt that has a silly slogan on it, and the the like you were like you were describing this the gent the gentle Socratic method of teaching where you would say, you you would try to elicit student responses and stuff like that. But then behind the scenes, it's like a good stage manager where everything has to be just so, mm. right? the um the the question the questions that the tas write have to be there by a certain time and um and the um the office hours and the um meetings between the, the professor and the and the three or four tas everything everything was was very um was very precise and i thought that that was very i thought that that was really nice to see that you can in fact, in some ways, you must in order to make uh, this comfortable learning experience for the kids, for the kids to really expand their minds and try new things and dip their toes in, in cold waters without being afraid, that you do have to work in that way behind the scenes. You do have to make sure that your house is in order. Mm. You do. You do. Yes. So, and how also, do you, oh, sorry. I, I, I have, uh, I have often fooled students into thinking that I am a very lenient grader. Mm. I. Mm -hmm. No, you, you are, you're on top of them, which is essential. You demand that they have quality work because you've, you know, they've and all been discussing it. Right. Which yeah. is also a reason why I always give them the option for revision. Yeah. That's important. Yeah, that to me is is essential. When I started teaching, the year after I was your TA, uh, instead of having like a midterm essay and a final essay, I I often did like a revision of the essay as your final, mm. or or I would do a midterm essay and then a revision and then a final essay that was on a different topic. Mm. But it always bothered me to do a final essay on a different topic because because I want to I. I don't necessarily want to see your one and done, right? I know how college essays are written. They're written the night before. So as long as that's going to be true, I'd rather have it written the night before and then have your re revision also written the night before. Mm. 
Yeah, um, well, that's, I, uh, I have always in, in, in big classes, I've had a midterm and a final, uh, and they've all been essay, but then I haven't weighted it very heavily. Mm. Uh, what I weight heavily is that paper that you can write and revise and get input from TAs and, yeah. and peer reviewers and me, and then revise. And then if it's still not to your liking, you can do it again. And again, yeah. And I know people will tell me it's a lot of work. Yes, but it's fun work. Yeah. 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 I actually took your advice, Ben, and I'm doing that for my first close reading poetry paper that the students are submitting. Um, and because this is all, I'm doing all virtual, um, I'm having them, I actually required it, they have to submit their thesis statement on the discussion board so I can give them feedback and approve it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you think there are a lot of grief, grief that way. Yeah. Um, well, I have, yeah. My, my younger son gave me a stamp and uh, <laughs> a very beautiful red ink pillow. Ah. And uh, it says, so what's your thesis? <laughs> um, and it, it's about this wide. Mm. And uh, yeah, yeah, it works. Yeah. The what, font is what's your thesis? That's really funny. And you just stamp on, on, on a oh, student's paper. I love that. Bam. I love that. <laughs> That's adorable. And I guess, and something everyone who's listening is, I'm sure observing, we don't all have the same assignments at all. We don't all agree on our pedagogy and that's important. We don't have to agree. You know, mm -hmm. like I can, we can all respect each other's choices. And I do think though, we're at a time right now where there's a lot of division. Um, there's a lot of name calling. Um, and I'm seeing that in academia, I'm seeing a divide of almost like, you know, and a lot of it I think comes with accessibility with technology. Some people just don't know how to use some of the technology. And I think that's an issue because um, it's an issue because it can, it can set up hierarchies that I don't know if any of us have dealt with before. And I don't know where to go with that, but it's, it's an observation I'm saying. It has to be addressed somehow, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, especially uh, those of us who are older, some of, some of us have a lot of problems. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I've had that many, but uh, some of us really do. Yeah. And uh, that's sad. Well, I was gonna say, you're on the Zoom right now, so you've already, you've already been able to access this. And I know that I've had conversations with instructors of an older generation who I'm close with. And some of them don't, they've just been sending out emails to their students because that's where they're at with their technology. And when I asked them, well, what kind of resources do you get from the university, from different universities? Because it's not all at Stony Brook, who, the people I talk know. to, there's really no support group. <laughs> it's almost like there needs to be a support group service. Um, I want to tell a little anecdote about professors and technology. When I was in my fourth year uh, of undergraduate, I took a class uh, in the Spanish department in 16th century Spanish literature, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it was supposed to be like a bunch of different novels and romances and so on, culminating in Don Quixote, which is 
the first book was published in 1605, the second in 1615. Mm -hmm. The professor was this fellow Gonzalo Sobejano. I should, I should probably lisp the, the Z, Gonzalo Sobejano. Um, he was about 80 at the time. Mm -hmm. And this was the only time I've ever encountered this. He gave out notes and assignments that were clearly written on a typewriter and hand corrected. Ah. And then one of the, the office staff, I think, would run copies for him. Hmm. It was the most, like, it, it felt like I was in just a different world. Uh, when I started teaching, the only way <clears throat> we could distribute to people was mimeographs. Yeah, exactly. So wow. I carried around these uh, alcohol stinking stacks. Tape. <laughs> <laughs> Except... Yeah. I'm saying though, except for the except for the 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 mimeograph being replaced by the Xerox, this guy clearly hadn't changed his style of teaching and and style of passing out notes in some fifty years. Mm. Yeah, and, and that was okay. Was, for oh, him. and he also smoked in his office, which oh, is wow. kind of a no-no. But he just kept lighting the cigarettes and then and then holding them. It was like it was like if his if his two fingers ever touched, he would die. And so he needed to put a cigarette between them to keep them from to keep them spaced. Like so so all through the office hour, it would just be one cigarette after another. He would maybe occasionally take a puff and then it would just burn down and he would put it in the ashtray. But wasn't smoking illegal on the Columbia Columbia yeah, campus in the offices? Obviously. But see again, this is an ego trip. I don't think it's an, I mean, it, in, in some ways it's an ego trip and in some ways it's just like, there's only, like, everybody draws their lines. Like everybody, everybody, everybody breaks some laws. Maybe it's that you, maybe it's that you speed on the LIE in the parts that you can when there's not too much traffic. Maybe, uh, like. And uh, well, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get into, because he's probably <laughs> retired now. I, um, I think he's probably a little more than that. Oh, well. Totally retired. Rest in peace. Um, <laughs> but it's like what Bent is addressing, which is, I, it's tough because we're, right, if we're teaching right now, we're trying to get by. We're trying to make it through on the goals that we have for our students and what we think is working with them. But then there are some who are floundering, who um, are trying to just even contact their students and um, might not even be really able to access Zoom. And yeah. I think for me right now, Zoom is the starting point. Like that is the, instantaneous way to access your students. Um, and I love using Zoom for office hours. I use it a lot. And I offer actually optional live classes for my students, especially like we're doing a peer review workshop that I really want them to come to. So, but then I hear from my students, they're exhausted with these live Zoom classes because some of them are on Zoom for eight hours a day. So, there is no answer right now. I don't think we've had these, like Ben's is saying, we haven't had these discussions. Um, On the other hand, <clears throat> think about how far teachers, both in uh, grad school and college, have come 
and how much they have learned and how much they have accomplished yeah. basically overnight. Yeah, that's true. And it, it, it amazes me. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. never thought I would be teaching online. Yeah. But now I'm, I'm tutoring, I'm holding all sorts of classes. Yeah. See, I always knew I would, but that's because I did online classes as an undergrad too. I did like a, I did a few on in the summer. I would like overload my credits in the summer. I was that kind of student. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't tell a lot of people, but I finished my undergrad in three years by taking overloads of credits. Like I would do 16 credits in the summer um, by doing different online and hybrid methods. But because I did online teaching, I saw all of this technology and I kind of then incorporated it into my own teaching and said, oh yeah, well, why not use VoiceThread outside of class to continue the conversation? But like what I was doing supplemental while I was doing in-person classes, I've now flipped around. So what was supplemental is now essential, mm -hmm. you know? But again, there's no requirement for faculty to do virtual teaching courses or not courses, but to do workshops. Um, and I always find that interesting in universities because my mom being a high school teacher, they have to do workshops every year to stay certified. Um, and I don't know, it's- And also, also in this country, there is no teacher education required to teach college. Mm -hmm. And that to me is very sad. Yeah. So you think there probably should be a teacher education oh, yeah. requirement? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. That's, uh, <laughs> I agree. Um, but again, it's also being at Stony Brook, right? This, I think maybe now we're going into a segue here, which is that Stony Brook is a research university. Um, they call it R1 for those listening. Um, and if you were teaching at a liberal arts, small liberal arts school, the priorities are usually shifted towards education in a liberal arts school um, and how you're delivering the methods to the students. I feel that in a research university, it's been very interesting because education sadly sometimes always gets on the back burner or that's not what's always valued in terms of funding. It's how much can you publish every year? Um, well, I mean, are there research, are there, are there, uh, liberal arts institutions nowadays that don't cost $60,000 a year? Because that's, that's a, that's another thing that, that we might as well address, right? Is that yeah. there are research institutions that cost massive amounts of money per year. I went to one. Um, but then there are places like Stony Brook and all the other state schools that cost substantially less, although it's still a lot for some people. Yeah. Um, well, I think Stony Brook is 8,000 a year for an in-state New Yorker. Um, Columbia is about 50,000 a year. I think it's more now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was less when I went there, obviously. Yeah. But, but it's, been, it's been growing. Well, and there are state universities of New York that are teacher colleges. So like I went to a teacher college in New Jersey, like that it had its founding as what they would call a normal school. So the normal schools in America were teacher colleges. 
but then a lot of them became, this is a whole history, I guess, of normal schools now, but I'll do it very quickly. They then became absorbed in New Jersey as state universities. So like I went to Kane, it was founded in 1855. I actually have my diploma on my desk. So that's how I know. Um, and there's a lot of these like middle-sized teacher colleges in New Jersey. And I think the same is true in the SUNY system. There's like SUNY Purchase, that's more teacher-oriented. SUNY Newports. Um, but Stony Brook is one of the largest research ones. And I guess in New Jersey, if you want to go to the largest research one, you go to Rutgers. Um, and, but like we're having Benta on, Benta is an educator or you spend a lot of time, Benta, on your teaching methods. And so there are educators at these research universities who really care about how they deliver the material. It's not like okay. that doesn't exist. Yeah, there are. I mean, if, if there hadn't been good teachers at Columbia, I probably wouldn't be interested in academia. Well, I wouldn't call Columbia. I think the Ivy Leagues are a little different in terms of, like Columbia is a liberal art oriented university. You know, like it um, is, but but it, it's. I mean, if you ask them for tenure, they're going to ask you for your research. They're not going to ask you. The the difference was dramatic at, between Columbia and Barnard, for example. And this is why I took as many classes as I could at Barnard, hmm. was because they made sure that their teachers could actually teach. Whereas at Columbia, it was a crapshoot. Yeah, but it's very interesting. When I took a PhD seminar at Columbia, shout out to Mariana Hirsch. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. She's such a good teacher and educator. Um, and we spent a lot of time talking about pedagogy and how to talk about feminist and queer theory to undergraduates and how you would teach that. But she said that that was rare for her being a faculty member at Columbia and that's what she actually really values in the Stony Brook PhD students is we spend a lot of time talking about pedagogy, which I do agree. I think being in the English department at Stony Brook and the PhD program, we talk a lot about teaching as PhD students. I'm always curious, what's that like on the other side of being a faculty member at Stony Brook in the English department? Like, are they spending as much time talking about pedagogy? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> But isn't that, it is, it kind of, it just fascinates me though that the grad students are doing a lot of that thinking. Wouldn't that then transfer to the faculty? I think the grad students are doing that kind of thinking because we have a good English teacher program in mm -hmm. the English department. And uh, many of the people who bring up these things are people active in the uh, English teacher prep program. So I think, uh, that's true. I think you guys were lucky having that. That's very true. Much. Yeah, our masters in the MAT, the masters in teaching, they are, yeah, at the top of their class. And um, professors Dunn, Lindblom, really do. You're right. They lead a lot of the discussions. So um, I'm glad that we have that type of, um, I don't know, tangential relationship and back and forth. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Just a, a, a sort of footnote. Um, at Stony Brook, we, we um, PhD students, 
would share our space with master's students and vice versa. I took at least one master's class when I was there. Um, master's students are allowed to take PhD classes. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that the masters of education, the, the, the MAT uh, students, masters of arts in teaching, uh, would be mixed in with the rest of us. Um, not wholly mixed in, like a PhD class would still be mostly PhD students, a master's class would still be mostly master's students. But it ended up meaning that our professors were interested in pedagogy, mm -hmm. which, as, uh, as Andrew and Bento are saying, is a very good thing. Because, you know, these kids, I mean, <laughs> you have to actually teach them. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they're not going to learn. Yeah, and we spend a lot of time as PhD students teaching, which is very different than what happens in other research PhD programs. Or I would even say when I talk to the Columbia PhD students, very well researched. So nothing, nothing, this is nothing against the Columbia PhD program. Okay, I just want to preface that. Um, but they would always say, wow, how do the PhD students at Stony Brook get to teach Shakespeare or um, a queer literature course or a film course or they're like we can never teach those courses because at Columbia they can only teach the great books class or the composition courses. They should have gone to Yale or Harvard most of the teachings done by graduate students. Mm. Wow wow and I guess that says something about Yale and Harvard system. It also too. says something about what people think they're paying for. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Harvard is the least expensive, so it makes sense that they would that they would uh, delegate their teaching. Well, Harvard also is known for <laughs> not get granting tenure to its faculty. Um, they're notorious. Harvard's notorious for kicking out faculty um, before they can reach a certain level. Uh, but that, that addresses a whole issue of, uh, <laughs> what we know in academia, the, um, that it is a rigged, it's not always a fair system. What uh, is? That's true. Is any institution a fair system? Uh, but I do think during this pandemic, right, we're talking about that not everyone can access technologies, right? There's inequalities here. And this is happening all in education right now, K through 12. Yeah. Um, so, so what do you do? What do you do if you have a student who can't afford a fast enough internet connection or a reliable enough computer? I mean, does Stony Brook have provisions for that? Do, do they, do they mm -hmm. tell you what to do? No. Um, I've been be dealing with that on email, mm -hmm. uh, which means that Apart from teaching my class, I'll spend a lot of time on email, back and forth with yeah. the kid. Yeah, that's so, a full-time job, email. Yeah. Yeah. So can you can you give us like without obviously without uh, naming names? Can you give us an example? Um, my my Wi-Fi broke down. I couldn't even access anything, and now I can get to my email uh, outside of the library by piggybacking on on their system. So. Yeah. Did we learn anything in class yesterday? And um, you could say no, and then that's it. Or you could say yes, but then that's not it. And then you'll have to get the highlights to the kid who then has questions. <laughs> Can go on for quite a Wait, while. Wait, do they actually, I mean, 
that that was always the most frustrating question. Did we learn anything in class yesterday? What what did you think we were doing? Oh, we were hanging out, <laughs> having a beer, talking <laughs> about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I did actually. There's a student that just reached out to me who has been falling behind in all the classes, and I'm going to be as general as possible, just not to you know disclose anything. Um, but has dealt with uh, anxiety and other um, exacerbated mental health issues <clears throat> because of the pandemic. And when you don't see them in person, you don't get the vibe and you can't jump in and help really. Yeah, and that they're getting, they're falling behind in the virtual. And I always say to my students at the beginning, as honestly as possible, if you don't have a set schedule and planner and Google calendar or anything to remind you of all these deadlines, if you miss one deadline, you are falling. It's like you've missed now a month of the semester because it's so hard to get back that energy of staying focused, right? Because we have to be really accountable to ourselves as well, like even as educators. And again, if you don't have people around you that can help you with that motivation, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, like right now, I can just feel the energy of our interview, and it's an amazing feeling because I feel so connected right now. But it can be very, like this student I'm going to meet in an office appointment tomorrow, and I'm making accommodations for the student. Like, I'll give you an extension, an incomplete. We will get this work done together, and just figure. So I'm figuring out different ways to deliver the material to the student that works for this student. Um, but you're saying, does the university have protocol, Adam? Um, they have SASE, which I can't remember the whole acronym's meaning, but they have, um, uh, I guess, a support system for students um, if they need accommodations. So there are accommodations, but it seems like because everything is now almost all virtual, there's only a few hybrid classes right now. Um, that there is no set rules yet about how to deliver accommodations virtually. So you have to rely on your instructor being a empathetic person uh, to give you accommodations. And again, if you have no personal contact with people, it takes you much longer to reach out. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that longer time before you do that, you have sunk so deep often that it's very hard to get out of the hole. Yeah. And then your instructor tells you what resources are available to you and you have to grab your bootstraps again <laughs> in order to get the courage to try that. And I, I, I think it's self-defeating in the long run. Yeah, for those yeah. Poor kids. yeah. But yeah, and, well, this is, this is why you were saying earlier that, that um, universities are probably seeing virtual education as a way to pad their bottom line, so to speak, as a way to cut costs. And it's really not. It's a way to cut services. Hmm. It takes the humanity out of a lot of things, yeah. Right. I, I miss body language. At the very least, I, I miss eye contact. I, I relied on those things heavily when I was... <laughs> Fent is giving Adam a stare right now, just so I can narrate. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank yeah. you. 
Well, and also, now, now, now keep that up the entire class and see how that goes. Can all solve the ills. I mean, we're even ourselves as, right? This is the humanity of us as teachers. My students, I've sent them inspirational music. I've sent them, you know, this is what's lifting my spirits right now. Maybe this will help you. How are you doing, right? How are you all doing? Like, there's no grade attached to this. I just want to know and check in with you. And I think that matters a lot to them. Like they've checked in with me maybe a few days after and they said, we appreciate that you're showing that you care about us and that you're not perfect yourself. Like you're not, you're not free from the emotional weight of the current moment. And that matters, right? I know that matters for me. It's, it does. We have to, we have to keep our spirits up as well. Um, it's very easy in this house one yeah. does it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and having interviews like this always brings my spirits up and walking. I mean, walking for me is a therapy. Um, I mean, actual therapy is good too for people to get if they need it. Uh, right. And, you know, I talk about that with Adam that we talk about how are we, how are we continuing to keep our energy up? And that's an important, it's, it's essential to address yeah. that. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, I guess I realized, um, and this might sound flippant, but I realized that the university is not going to do that for us. Like, I can't rely on the university checking in with the faculty or the grad students or that you should be happy for your paycheck yeah yeah and yeah it's i mean i'm curious though because you are you know teaching and i guess still considered faculty right benta i don't know ah Okay. So you're like in a liminal space. I, I don't have a I don't have a department anymore. Oh. So uh, right now I'm in honors, and next semester I don't know what I'm being in because I have two classes, and uh, one of them is for the undergraduate colleges, and the other is in honors. So. Uh, hmm. Yeah. What is what does that mean honors? Uh, the honors college. Yeah, I I was never really familiar with that when I was at. It's a cohort of about a hundred a year. Mm. Okay. And they're from different departments, right, Benta? They're from all over. Yeah. And uh, they, in the good old days when we had decks, they were deck exempt, but they had to take some classes that covered a lot of those decks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but so they were geared totally to those kids. So basically they're a small cohort that are taking a lot of courses with each other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like there is an English honors program. So they would all, is that different though? The English honors program? Yeah. It's all English majors. Okay. Okay. But like, so you will have some who are in the humanities. I, uh, this year I have a class of 15 and uh, one of them's in the humanities, mm -hmm. but that's a minor. <laughs> ah, okay. But so technically though, you could get an English major. Oh, I have had it. Oh, okay. So, 
So what do you what do you teach them? Uh, this class uh, is it's, I, I'm doing mini courses because they have to take three mini courses. Mm. Uh, it's one a one credit class, one hour a week, and uh, this semester and next semester we are plowing our way through American Gods. So okay. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so those who don't know, it's uh, by Neil Gaiman, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, well, and because this is going to air around Halloween, that's keeping my spirits up right now because I'm a horror gothic extraordinaire. <laughs> but I'm <laughs> right now I'm holding Shirley Jackson's novels and stories book. But I just... Really, Library of America. Love, what? Library of America. Yep, yep, it is. Um, but I really love the opening of the lottery because, for me, it really speaks to the current moment. And even we have beautiful weather right now. Like I can see, um, the sun is shining in all of our rooms, and I really love. So, is it okay if I just read the first few lines? Would that be okay with all oh, of you? No, please do. Okay. There's so, always editing, my dear. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny, with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely, and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square, between the post office and the bank, around 10 o'clock. In some towns, there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 26. But in this village, where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours. So it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for, din for noon dinner. Uh, the children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer and the feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather qui together quietly for a while before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still of the classroom and the teacher, of books and reprimands. Okay, and then it goes on to explain all of these different school children. But I just love the opening of this Gothic text because uh, Jackson is so good at confusing slash destabilizing the reader's expectations. And it reminds me of a movie that Adam and I really love, the horror movie Midsummer, that I think took a lot of its inspiration from the lottery, but where you have a horror story beginning with such a beautiful, sunny, um, lush day, but and you don't know what's to come soon. And I'm not gonna spoil it for those who haven't read the lottery. So read the lottery um, and I'll include it in the notes. But it, it, I guess in a way, it, it's helped me process, and this might sound strange, but it's helped me process the uncertainty of these times right now, thinking of texts like these that alter your expectations as a reader. And there's such beauty right now of nature. And I know that the beauty of nature is going to continue to stay. Um, while we're all feeling uneasy and anxious and there's uncertainty right now. Um, yeah, that's fair. 
But and I hope like what happens in the lottery, of course, it doesn't get to that level. Um, so again, it always does. The silver lining in my um, playbook is when you read these gothic and horror texts, usually your life is not going to plunge as much as these characters' lives do. Um, so it's provided a certain therapy. And apparently horror movies and horror novels and stories are really helping people through the pandemic. It's glorious escapism. It is, it is. <laughs> and that escapism is like, yeah, we've talked about all the difficulties with our teaching and yeah, there's a lot of difficulties and uncertainty. I'm grateful though that it's provided me escapism. Um, so I'm grateful that I'm teaching right now because I do feel like it's given me a community. And, um, and it sounds like it's done that for you, Benta, and it's done, Adam, your tutoring is doing that as well. Um, like I sometimes, I feel a lot for those I know who are unemployed and to continue to keep their spirits up. That's, you know, especially those I know in the performing arts who, have to, they're questioning their profession. That's, you know, I know there are those who are basically, I know there, there, there are those who are being dealt a worse hand than I am right now. Like I, I feel very grateful right now and encouraged. Um, and I think it's important. We're all very honest with each other right now. Cause honesty is um, not found in our government right now uh and i think that i think the falsehoods are really trickling down into every institution and it can be hard to know who to trust with facts <laughs> but i want to keep of, our spirits up yeah. not only that but uh, the value of an education is rapidly dwindling mm. Yeah. No, we don't trust educated people. No, we don't trust science. No, we don't trust anything but what we like to trust. Yeah, it's so that, frightening. It's frightening. It is. Yeah. yeah. Have you read 1984 lately, anybody? <laughs> I am scared to read it. Not lately. It's moment. <laughs> it's... Uh, I had a horrible experience. I was, again, in a, in a one-credit class that uh, was running in the spring of... 16. Oh, wow. 17. And I had to select my books before the election. And I had selected 1984 because I would like to see what they would do with it. And then came the election. Oh, my. So that was a whole different uh, experience teaching 1984 than I thought it would be. I'm sure. Even in the first half year of, yeah. of administration. Yeah. Well, it was like I taught Hamlet as the pandemic was starting and we didn't know if we were going to be off campus yet. And I started to realize, wow, this starts during a pandemic, Hamlet, and a plague. If I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of instability going on. Uh, well, um, I mean, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> but um, the, the play, uh, the subject matter itself is not during a pandemic it's a viking thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by itself. so yeah 
Yeah. Where he actually uh, gets the girl. Mm. Kills his uncle and gets oh, the girl. Oh, in the source material. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a little more uplifting nature to the actual historical. Ahem, historical. Yeah. Well, maybe Not that's a history so and <clears throat> history. <laughs> well, maybe that's a silver lining for us that we can't reach any more uh, levels of depravity. Oh, we can't. Just we give can. us time. We can. This is actually. Yeah, I, know. I know. But I guess to conclude. And I don't want to conclude, but I know we have to put a we have to put a bookmark, right? This, these conversations are going to continue to happen, and I know that's maybe the most optimistic thing that can be said. <laughs> that's true. Um, oh, Andrew, go, Andrew, go, go, go. <laughs> so, what's giving you hope right now, Benta? Yeah, such a loaded question. Um, I think it's important that science is still functioning and that it will be able to give us a vaccine at some point. Mm -hmm. um, what that vaccine will do uh, is a good question. What the virus will do is a good question and whether it will still be susceptible to the vaccine when we get it is a good question, but at least there's something somebody is trying to do to make this go away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because herd immunity to me is a pipe dream yes and uh we'll lose too many people to get, get it so yeah all that well and also what you said too um is that there were you're doing teaching virtual teaching now and accessing modalities i'm making this sound very formal but you're accessing different technology that you never thought you probably would have been doing while teaching. So there was a quick learning curve mm -hmm. for a lot of instruction and teachers. And I know myself, I had never even heard of what Zoom was. Um, yeah, same. And now it's in our vernacular. Um, oh, my, oh my dear, I had been on Zoom meetings before the pandemic. <laughs> hey, you were ahead of the curve with the Zooming. Um, <laughs> Oh gosh, using the term curve now is, has its own uh, history and its current, uh, you know, meaning that I'm sure when we listen back to our interview years from now, hopefully this just seems like a capsule in time. Hopefully. I, I hope so. Um, but I know it was amazing just lifting our spirits, Bento, which you always do, uh, keeping us part of a community and getting to have a community like this in a podcast form. Uh, I know there are those who listen to this and they're really enjoying the conversation. So maybe another optimistic part of this is we've, people have been brought into this conversation who never before, um, we were isolated in different ways in university life. Uh, yeah, that's true. So, Sounds very optimistic that people have been brought together. One thing you can still do is throw a frisbee. To me, like the most, or or a baseball, I guess. I mean, I'm not that athletic, but the most important thing um, to me when I was when I was an undergrad was occasionally going out to the green and 
and engaging in one of these activities. Yeah. But nowadays, yes, you can throw a frisbee, but you have to walk over and get it back. No, that's the thing. Uh, is that is that it's it's a socially distanced activity. Yes, you're touching the frisbee, but you can wash your hand when you're done. You can. Yeah, and that's like I play tennis, and that's a very that's even better because you're not even sport. You're not even touching anything mutually. Yeah, I mean there is. Yeah, there is a lot. Again, though, if if you're immunocompromised, it's a different thought process um, than I'm having right now in my own head. Um, so I want to recognize this isn't a one size fits all in terms of activities that can you can go out and do. Um, but most of us can listen to podcasts. And I have to say, just even hearing, I love the radio programs that I'm attuned to because living by myself, I think that's also what keeps me really uplifted is I hear a lot of different conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and that matters now more to me than ever. Because um, I don't hear the conversations in the hallway from my office in the university. Um, and I've been back to my office and it's a ghost town in the humanities building. Um, it's actually quieter than my apartment, which, you know, yeah. speaks a lot to what's happening. Um, but yeah, well, and I know if I try to throw a Frisbee, I could probably get it to Benta's house right now because um, we live very close. And all those darn trees, though. That's true. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> I don't know if it'll, it'll make it. Um, but this has been wonderful. So thank you, Benta, for your time, for your advice, your mentorship, your wisdom. Um, thank you for having me again. Yes, thank you. And I know we're going to continue our conversations offline. So, and we encourage everyone who listens to our podcast, right, Adam, to leave us a voice yeah. message. Please. Email us, um, andrew.rimby at stonybrook.edu. We get back to you with everything. Um, always, we'd love to hear from you. And um, thank you also to um, Dean Sampson of the College of Arts and Sciences for spreading around our podcast. Um, on the Twitter sphere and the newsletter, that matters a lot. So yeah, we've been, we've, we've seen a bit of an uptick in I found that a little bit ironic because mostly what we do is we bitch about uh, administrators. And here's this administrator saying, look, there's a new podcast. <laughs> they mention us. I feel so loved. She's, she's a good person. She's a good person. Yeah. Good. And she's very in contact with the graduate students and knows of the difficulties that we're navigating right now. So, good. right, I think like we've been advocating this whole time, it's okay to critique in the institutions that you're a part of. It doesn't mean that it's against one person. It's systemic. Yeah. Well, right? We can to. critique systems. I, I would turn that around. It's not okay not to critique. It never should be okay not to critique. No, exactly. There is, there is academic freedom. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think we should keep advocating for freedom in our, in academia. I mean, yeah, yeah, with what you Fantastic. teach, of Fantastic. course. So yes, the, the point is, like Andrew said, keep the conversation going. We want mm -hmm. to hear from you. 
We want your letters. We want your sound bites. Um, and we want to know who you would like to hear featured. If you know somebody or if you are somebody who is a, who, who has a unique take on the graduate experience, mm -hmm. either being a graduate student, being a recently minted PhD student, or if you have something else that you just think that we would be interested in. Yeah. Like for instance, a, um, a person who does uh, writing education and also cleans beaches. Yes. Like for instance, a person who uh, travels to the far east of India to interview government dissidents, right? We want, we want these interesting stories. Or that you intersect with university communities like you are um, a fitness enthusiast and you do a lot of outreach with universities and yeah. mental health. I mean, I think we could, yeah, like you've heard, we've had um, a performing arts educator on. So it's all, I think we're all more connected than necessarily distanced from each other in our conversations. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm, we're wishing all of you out there, keep your spirits up. If you look at our show notes, we have a lot of literature recommendations now, thanks to Venta and all these conversations that she's inspired with us. Um, yeah, we're gonna have, yeah. we're gonna have a decent bibliography this time around. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, and to stay healthy and safe out there, um, oh, use your wear judgment. Your, wear your mask and vote. Wear your mask, yes, you wear your mask. Uh, I think now <laughs> this is gonna be our PSA section. Um, <laughs> but uh, we thank you all out there and look forward to hearing from all of you. Yeah, thanks um, for listening. Have a great day, everyone.